Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 107, The House of Wittin. Now, if you ever come to Dresden, and if you like art, architecture and history, you very much should, you may want to turn into Augustusstraße right by the Residenzschloss. What you find there is the largest porcelain artwork in the world, 102 meters long and made from 23,000 Meissen porcelain tiles. This is the Fürstenzug, the procession of princes. It was made to celebrate 800 years of the House of Wittin, who ruled over what we now know as the Land of Saxony. It portrays 35 Markgrafs, Electors, Dukes and Kings from 1127 to 1904. Being essentially a 19th century artwork, it depicts all these Saxon rulers as powerful military leaders surrounded by their fighting men and important nobles, all in contemporary costume. There are 94 depictions and only one female figure in the whole procession. So, was the lasting rule of the House of Wittin built upon their martial prowess? Well, they did fight a lot, but the true source of their power is depicted in one of the very last figures of the procession coming after the princes, the army, the intellectuals, the artist, and is largely obscured by the images of the carpenter and the builder involved in the project. What that figure represents and what lay at the heart of the Wittiner's success, we'll find out. But before we start, let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. One of you was telling me that I shouldn't say from the price of a latte per month, but for the price of a latte per month. I'm afraid you can opt for tiers which are significantly more expensive than a latte per month, and many of you very kindly do. So therefore it is from the price of a latte per month. In any way, whether you go for the latte per month or the more than one latte per month option, all you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Troy, WB, Jim D and Melinda H who've already signed up. Last week we talked about Albrecht the Bear and the creation of the Mark of Brandenburg. And you may remember that he got his first break in 1123 when the future emperor Lothar III enfeeved him with the mark of Lusatia. And at that same time, and in that same context, Lothar also enfeeved Conrad, Count of Wettin, with the mark of Meissen. Conrad leads the Fürstenzug I mentioned and is generally seen as the founder of the dynasty. But if you have listened attentively and have been able to navigate the sea of names, most of which are Frederick or Henry, you may remember that Conrad was not the first Markgraf of Meissen from the Wittiner family. That was Henry of Eilenburg, Conrad's cousin. In fact, the Wittiners had been dukes and Markgrafs for generations before. So, other than Albrecht the Bear, the elevation of Conrad was more in the spirit of continuity and inheritance. And it shows, apart from a brief conflict with Wiprecht of Greutsch in the first two years after his appointment, Conrad did not have to do much fighting nor did he have to sign shady deals with local potentates to expand his territory. In fact, he benefited from the shady actions of his neighbor Albrecht the Bear. You may remember from last episode that Albrecht lost his Margraviate of Lusatia after his men had murdered Udo of Frexleben. The Margraviate of Lusatia then went to Conrad without him having to do anything special. And that sets a pattern. 
Conrad acquired more and more lands and positions in his margraviate, either by purchase or grant. He bought the county of Bautzen east of Dresden. He was granted the county of Rochlitz, as well as most of the lands once owned by Wiebrecht of Greutsch. At the end of his 35 years as prince, he had amassed a large and coherent territory, which is pretty much equivalent to what we now call the Land Sachsen. Now Konrad is called the Great in the Fürstenzug, which is a moniker not normally given to guys with modest military exploits and a habit of getting gifts from kings and bishops. What makes Konrad and his immediate successors stand out is their use of both the colonization trend and the bundle of rights that come with the title of Margraf to create one of the earliest territorial principalities in the empire. Let's start with colonization. That had begun a lot earlier in the Margraviate of Meissen than in many other parts. Wiebricht of Greutsch had invited settlers from Franconia as early as 1104 to live on previously uninhabited lands south of Leipzig. Konrad dramatically accelerated this process. One of the ways he did that was by not doing everything himself. Instead, he would grant vast tracts of sparsely inhabited land to his minister Jales and even more often to monasteries. These would then organize the colonization themselves, bringing in people from a wide range of places. Furthermore, the big difference between Meissen and Lausitz compared to Brandenburg was that these territories had been under much more intense Saxon control for a longer time. The Slavic uprising in 983 did not result in Slavic principalities. Though the population was almost entirely Wendish before 1100, the elite was either Saxon or assimilated into the Saxon nobility. Wiebrecht of Greutsch, who came from Slavic stock and rose to become the most prominent political figure in the region, is a great example. So, a lot of the land, including the large forests and marshlands, were already in the possession of some local nobles, bishops or monasteries. Plus, there were important centers of power, like Meissen itself. The town of Meissen was transformed from a Slavic settlement into a German town by King Henry the Fowler and had remained the seat of a bishop since. Meissen has played a role in our podcast before, as had Bautzen even further east. One of the things that Meissen, Brandenburg and the Lausitz had in common was that the majority of the peasants who had come there had been free laborers or had been released by their landlords back home. So the new settlers were in the vast majority free men and women. So there were very few serfs. Which leaves the question, how will Conrad and his descendants benefit from all this development activity when the colonization is largely managed by other people and these people are all free? And that comes down to the way Conrad managed to exploit the rights that came with being a Margrave. As you may remember, a Margrave was originally a count in charge of a frontier county. His role was not just to administer justice and maintain the king's peace, he was also responsible for the defense of the border. In light of this additional burden, the Markgrafs were given full access to the royal regalia in their territory. In other words, all the special rights the kings have in the rest of the kingdom were given to the Markgraf, mainly to fund the defense of the border. Amongst these rights was the right to build castles, to establish markets, to demand tolls, to mint coins and to exploit mineral resources. Conrad and his descendants had the great advantage that their Margraviate no longer bordered any hostile enemies. To their south was the Duchy and soon Kingdom of Bohemia, an integral part of the Holy Roman Empire. That means when the imperial rulers came into Meissen by force, 
it was for some reason of internal imperial politics, not as a foreign foe. As for the eastern border with Poland, the threat had much diminished. Ever since Boleslav the Brave, the Kingdom of Poland was riven by internal conflicts. Boleslav III Rymouth had managed to unify the kingdom in 1107, but by 1138 he was forced by internal politics to split the kingdom amongst his five sons. And this division lasted until 1320, leaving the individual states unable to mount any expansionist politics westwards. We'll look at this in more detail in future episodes. For now, what matters is that Poland was no longer a threat to the exterior border. So, the absence of any need to fortify the borders or pay soldiers to fight there did, however, not mean that the Margraves of Meissen and Lusatia were prepared to hand back all the great regalia they had received. No. Instead, they used them to leverage themselves into territorial rulers. They erected castles across their lands and put men in charge of them who reported directly to them. The castles were there to guarantee the peace and often were the seat of justice. And for these services they collect tolls from passing merchants, court fees and general levies on the peasants. And when they gave land from the royal demesne to a monastery, say, they made themselves the forked or worldly administrator of this land, collecting a share of the income. The most valuable part of these rights was the most unexpected. In 1162, Conrad's eldest son, Otto, gave a large tract of land in the forest that Tietma of Merseburg had called the Mirkvidu, between what is today Dresden and Chemnitz, and he gave that to the monastery of Altzelle. This was to become the house monastery for the family of Wittin, and the Cistercians there were to pray for the passage into the afterlife of all the family members. So far so normal. The Cistercians then began, as they always did, developing the land, cutting down the trees, inviting colonists and establishing new villages. In one of these villages called Christiansdorf, named after a locator called Christian, a settler finds a curiously looking rock. It turns out this rock contains not just lead, but also silver. And this rock was no fluke. More and more appear, and it is clear there is a huge deposit of silver under this hill. An enormous deposit. Markgraf Otto does two things. First, he takes the land back from the monks of Altzelle, leaving dead in purgatory for a little bit longer. And then he invites over the only people in the empire who have expertise in mining silver, the miners of Goslar. You may remember that the silver mines of Goslar were a crucial part in the economics that kept the emperors in funds. The Ottonians relied heavily on the silver mines to pay for their wars in Italy. During the Salian reign, Goslar was a massively important location and Henry III built his great palace there. As counterintuitive as it sounds, silver is so important because it is much less valuable than gold. Gold coins are pretty much useless as a day-to-day money. One single gram of gold costs currently 50 pounds, and a typical coin would be 4.5 grams, i.e. worth 225 pounds in today's money. There is very little items that cost £225 in a medieval shop. Silver is much better for this. One gram of silver costs 60p today. That makes silver coins a much better means of exchange than gold. In fact, very few gold coins were minted in the Middle Ages. Frederick II minted his Augustalis more as a demonstration of his power than as a way to pay anyone. It will take until the High Middle Ages before gold coins become common. 
All that means that silver is in very high demand and Otto Markgraf of Meissen just got himself a mine. No wonder he is called Otto the Rich. The settlers flood into the little village of Christiansdorf. This is a proper gold rush, or more precisely a silver rush. By 1170 there are already two large churches, a third is begun in 1180. The common view is that the place is given city status in 1168, mere six years after the first tree was cut down and presumably only two or three years after the first rock was found. The name is changed to Freiberg and it quickly overtakes Leipzig as the mercantile center of the region. Now, one silver mine is great, but what about several? Here again, the Vettina approach of letting other people do the work kicks in. Otto declares the right to mine a free right. That means that anyone is free to dig everywhere they want, as long as they have the permission of the landowner. And whatever they find, they have to give one-tenth to the Markgraf. And this precipitates a mining boom, first around Freiburg, but in the 13th century at Dippolswalde and Scharfenberg, in the 14th Neustädtel and Neustadt, in the 15th and 16th century this goes into overdrive, with Altenberg, Annaberg, Bärenstein, Buchholz, Ehrenfriedersdorf, Marienberg, Scheibenberg, Schneeberg and Zinnwald feeding the coffers of the Markgrafs and electors. The mountain range that held all this wealth stretched along the border between Saxony and Bohemia. It contained as much metal ore, mainly silver and tin, that they are now known as the Erzgebirge, the Ore Mountains. On the Bohemian, i.e. Czech side, one place became famous for the silver coins minted there the town of Joachimsthal, or Yachimov in Czech. Tal is valley in German. And this coin was called the Joachimsthaler and was so common people abbreviated the name to Staler and finally to Thaler. Thaler became the word for many large silver coins, like the Reichsthaler or the Maria Theresienthaler. From there the word moved to Spain, where it was another term for the famous pieces of eight, or pesos for short. The Spaniards pronounced it dollars. During the American War of Independence, the British restrained the colony's access to hard currency, so the Spanish silver coins, the dollars, began circulating in the United States. On April 2, 1792, Alexander Hamilton, by now more famous for his musical prowess, but at the time actually Treasury Secretary, declared the money of account for the new country should be expressed in Spanish dollars or fragments thereof. There you go. From medieval margrave to modern monetary instruments in under four minutes. So, the wealth of the House of Wittin came from mining, which makes it simply rude that the Fürstenzug gives room only to one miner and he's tucked away in the back. And how important the mines were is getting apparent when you remember what happened to the descendants of Albrecht the Bear. Both he and Conrad of Meissen end up splitting their possessions between their many sons. The Ascania divisions are permanent, and every time one of their lines dies out, none of the others have the clout or the money to bring the inheritance back together. Not so the House of Wittin. Otto the Rich had been the eldest of the five sons of Conrad. When Conrad retired to a monastery in Halle, his possessions were divided amongst them. But the difference is that the Vitina possessions almost always come back together again. And that to me comes down to the mines and the wealth they produce. If at least one side of the family controls the mines, they can push through their claims even against the harshest opposition, as we will see. 
It begins with Otto the Rich's two sons, Albrecht called the Proud and Dietrich called the Pressured. Albrecht was the elder, but Dietrich was his mother's favorite. And his mother Hedwig somehow convinced her husband to promise the succession in the Margraviate and hence the position of the mines to the younger son Dietrich. In 1188, Albrecht the Proud did the one thing he could do at this point. He gathered support amongst his uncles and apprehended his father and threw him in jail. That was a severe disturbance of the peace, so the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa intervened. Albrecht had to release his father. But after an uneasy two years, Otto the Rich died and Albrecht the Proud immediately took over as Margrave. That was fortunate for him, but it was still very unfortunate timing. Because as we know, 1190 is also the year Barbarossa dies and Henry VI takes over. And Henry VI invites Albrecht to come along to fight for his crown in Sicily, an offer Albrecht could not refuse. And once Albrecht the Proud is out of town, his younger brother, Dietrich the Pressured, stages a coup, together with his father-in-law, the Landgraf Hermann of Thuringia. That coup did fail, partially because Albrecht returns and the two sides fight for four years, at the end of which Dietrich gained just Weissenfels. All that becomes irrelevant when Albrecht dies in 1195 and does not leave a male heir. At that point, Dietrich should now finally become Margrave. But no. There is a reason he is known by history as Dietrich der Bedrängte, Dietrich the Pressured. Because the Emperor Henry VI cancels the enfeeblement and takes the mark of Meissen for himself. Why he did that may have to do with the deal he was trying to strike with the Imperial Princess right around this time. You may remember, very long ago, there was a deal on the table, and the princes would gain the right to dispose of their fiefs, their duchies, margraviates and palatinates, as they wished, even pass it down the female line. In exchange, they would have to accept that the imperial title would also become inheritable, rather than an elective title. In other words, the emperor could no longer recall a fief upon the death of the incumbent, if the princes placed the Hohenstaufens on the throne forever. Now, recalling the mark of Meissen just at that time may have been a way of putting a bit of more power behind his proposal. Or it was just part of his father's policy to expanding the family territory. Dietrich seemed to have caved to that imperial pressure and signed up for Henry VI's crusade, presuming as a way to regain the imperial grace or, failing that, benefiting from the proposed deal. Dietrich is one of the few participants in this crusade who makes it to the Holy Land, where he hears that Henry VI had died. So he swiftly returns home and, again with his father-in-law's help, regains physical possession of his margraviate. In 1198 he sides with Philip of Swabia in the civil war between the Welfs and the Hohenstaufen and is confirmed in his fief. That was a close shave that could have ended the family right there. Instead, Dietrich the Pressure becomes one of the most successful and probably one of the most cunning early Vettina. He takes advantage of the constant back and forth in the civil war between Philip and Otto IV, and towards the end, when Philip seems to be winning boldly swifts to Otto IV, a move that pays out handsomely when Philip is murdered in 1208, leaving Otto IV in charge. And another 180 degree turn was needed when Emperor Frederick II comes up to Germany in 1213 to challenge Otto IV, and again, he reacts quickly and can keep his territory. And he does a great job with it. 
the first wave of colonization is coming to an end and his next effort is to build out the existing cities like Leipzig and Chemnitz and to create new ones, the most important which was Dresden. During his 24-year reign, the administration of the Margravia tightened further, ensuring peace and justice to a much higher degree than in many other parts of the empire. And just like today, if the state provides a reliable framework in which to operate, enterprising minds find it easier to build and grow businesses. The flip side of tight control is the loss of freedom, and that is particularly the case with the citizens of Leipzig. The town had grown fast and its citizens were looking to places like Lübeck and Cologne and demanded to become a free imperial city. But that was not something Dietrich, with all his love for growth and merchants, could have tolerated. He used his vast wealth to oppose their demands. The citizens had some initial military successes, but in 1217 Dietrich prevailed. So, Leipzig, one of the largest German cities and one driven by trade and its famous fair, never became a free imperial city. And it may have been the reason for Dietrich's early death. It is likely that he was poisoned by his doctor, who in turn may have been bribed to do so by the citizens of Leipzig. Dietrich leaves behind a son, Henry, nicknamed the Venerable, who ruled, at least nominally, for 67 years. He was just six years old when his father died in 1221. Despite his minority and the ambitions of his neighbours, the Margraviate held together. And Henry continued the policy of tightening control. We are now in a period when the political system shifts from the medieval model of interlocking rights and privileges to that of territorial principalities. And that concept was first tried by Henry IV in Saxony during the 1070s. And the idea is that instead of holding a long list of individual rights as a personal possession, the magnate would be a prince who exercises all power over a specific territory. So in the 10th century, a senior nobleman would look at his possessions and say, but I own this castle, I own these sets of fields, that toll on that bridge and then mark it over in the next town. Everything he does not explicitly own is either someone else's or the king's. A territorial prince looks at a piece of land and says that in this specific territory, everything is his, except for the things others have a legitimate claim to. This transition from one state to the other is naturally gradual and vestiges of the older system still prevailed into the 19th century. But it can be argued that the Vitinas and Meissen were ahead of their peers in forming territorial principality, largely on the back of the fact that the land was comparatively new, that they had the king-like position of the Markgrafs and the wealth to buy out competitors. Another great benefit to them was the privilege in favour of the princes that Emperor Frederick II signed in 1231-32. With that, he had granted pretty much all of the regalia to the imperial princes, i.e. those who had received at least one fee from the emperor directly. From then on in his charters, Henry is referred to as Princeps Terre, territorial prince. The last great benefit the Hohenstaufen's grant Henry is also the largest. Henry's mother was a daughter of the Landgraf of Thuringia. Now the Landgraf rivaled the Vitinas for wealth and for the efficiency of their administration. They were the most astute players in the game of back and forth between Philip of Swabia, Otto IV and Frederick II and had become immensely rich and powerful in the process. Their castle of Wartburg had become the centre of Minnesang culture and the splendour of their court was legendary. In their short existence they also counted a most venerable saint in their midst, Saint Elizabeth of Thuringia. 
but the luck of the Landgrafs ran out with Heinrich Raspe. Raspe had thought he could play the game in the big league when he became the head of the paper party that opposed the Emperor Frederick II. They made him anti-king and he began a war against Frederick II's supporters, one of which was Henry the Venerable. Heinrich Raspe was wounded in one of these battles in 1247 and died. With that, the male line of the Landgrafs had died out. There were a number of sisters married to various princes with eminent offspring, but Frederick II gave the whole of the Landgravia to his faithful servant, Henry the Venerable, Markgraf of Meissen. One conflict ended in 1249 with the Treaty of Weissenfels, whereby the Landgraviate was split. The part west of the Vera River came to the Counts of Hesse, and the remainder came to the House of Wettin. The other leg ended in 1264 after a mere 17 years of fighting. And to celebrate this achievement, Henry the Venerable organized an eight-day-long tournament. The first prize was a tree made from solid silver with solid gold fruit hanging off it. The court of Dresden had taken over from the Wartburg as the center of high medieval culture in the German lands. By 1268, as the empire fell into the interregnum, Henry the Venerable was the most powerful secular lord north of the Alps. Or he should have been, had he not undermined his own position by splitting his lands with his sons. These two, again called Albrecht and Dietrich, each got a piece, whilst Henry held on to the Margraviate of Meissen. The two brothers instantly began fighting each other, and in 1268 it became open war. In 1270, Albrecht the Elder, who became known as Der Entartete, or the Degenerate, turned on his venerable father. But this was not the only thing that horrified his peers. Albrecht had been married to Margaret, the legitimate daughter of Emperor Frederick II and his wife, Isabella of England. But the relationship had broken down. Albrecht quite openly preferred a Kunigunde von Eisenberg. His wife Margaret felt deeply insulted that this little Margrave would so humiliate the daughter of an emperor and the granddaughter of a king. She did leave Albrecht and went to Frankfurt, where she died shortly afterwards. What a scandal! Albrecht the Degenerate had three sons with Margaret, one where it is said laconically that he disappeared in Silesia, whatever that means. Then there were two younger ones, Frederick and Dietzmann. There's a story that Margaret, when saying goodbye to her sons, bit Frederick in the cheek, so that he should forever remember what his father had done. Hence Frederick is known as Friedrich der Gebissene, or Frederick the Bitten. To compound the scandal, the two younger sons also run off, joining their uncle Dietrich, who is still at war with their father. At that point, a sort of total war starts between Albrecht and all other members of his family. In the midst of all this sits Henry the Venerable, who sees his life's work crumble into dust. In 1288, he is released from his mortal toil, no doubt cursing his sons. The death of the patriarch did, however, calm things somewhat. The different legs of the family divide up the inheritance of Henry the Venerable and sign an agreement promising each other to respect the newly drawn borders to eternity. Family feuds run on their own timelines and eternity turns out to be 12 months. By 1290 there are back at it hammer and tongs. At which point a new party enters the fray, King Rudolf of Habsburg. Rudolf had an amazing career, which we will no doubt investigate in detail in a later episode. But let's just summarize it as follows. 
a modest count from what is essentially Switzerland, is elected king in 1273 because he is of obscure nobility, limited power and horribly poor. But clearly he had some other qualities because by 1275 he'd taken Austria from King Ottokar of Bohemia and made himself a duke. Following this success, he recalled all imperial territories that had been lost since the death of Frederick II. What was and was not an imperial fief became a bit fluid as time went by. So first he demanded the Pleissenland, a territory between Meissen and Thuringia that had been acquired for the crown by Frederick Barbarossa but had come to the house of Wettin by the ill-fated marriage of Albrecht and Margaret. That was reverted to the crown after a payment of 10,000 mark of silver to Albrecht, who found himself in an ever tighter spot financially. All that fighting had disrupted the silver production in Freiburg. In 1290, Rudolf von Habsburg dies and his successor, another impecunious count with grand ambitions, Adolf of Nassau, has a go at the possessions of the ever-quarreling Wettina. When first Albrecht's brother and then his son died, his lands get split between Frederick the Bitten and Dietzmann. That split is then objected to by King Adolf of Nassau, who awards it to the Ascania in nearby Brandenburg, bringing another party to the table. Friedrich the Bitten and his brother manage to push the Brandenburgers back. Flush with this success, they turn against their father, who flees to the court of King Adolf of Nassau. Now Albrecht is now completely broke and sells the Margraviate of Meissen, the Landgraviate of Thuringia, the Pleissenland and everything else for 12,000 marks of silver to King Adolf of Nassau. So the richest territory, with the seemingly inexhaustible silver mines of Freiburg, is going for a song. But not really, because Friedrich and Dietzmann actually sit on these lands, and they refuse to hand them over. In 1294, royal troops enter the Margraviate and burn what is left of the once flourishing lands to the ground. They go home before reaching Leipzig, but return in 1295, now pushing on as far as Freiburg and Meissen. The two brothers flee. Frederick the Bitten resumes the fight in 1297 and by 1298 he is again lord, but lord of a shell of a land. But the pain is not over. King Adolf's reign ends ignominiously at the Battle of Gölheim, where the anti-king Albrecht of Habsburg beats his troops and takes over. Naturally, Frederick and Dietzmann are fans of the new King Albrecht of Habsburg, but hey, we are before the good old times of two Felix Austria Nube. King Albrecht does like the politics of his father, and one of those was to get hold of Meissen and the great silver mines of Freiburg. So, that means Albrecht, so King Albrecht, reinstalls Albrecht the Degenerate in Meissen with a proviso that upon his death all his lands go to him. Same deal as Adolf, but this time not much payout. He then calls Friedrich and Dietzmann to come to a royal assembly to finalize the feudal arrangements for Thuringia and all the other possessions, presumably so that they can go to their father and from there to King Albrecht. The two brothers, one twice, the other thrice bitten, once shy, give this opportunity a miss. Everything's now in total chaos. The cities think this is their opportunity to become free imperial cities and fight whoever is currently claiming overlordship. For Eisenach, that was at the time Albrecht the Degenerate. They besiege him in the Wartburg, where none other than his son Frederick the Bitten relieves him. The family, or what is left of it, are now holding hands and promise eternal mutual support. They muster an army to fight King Albrecht, who had now dropped all pretense. On May 31, 1307, the two sides joined battle at Lucca near Aldenburg. The royal army was commanded by Count Frederick of Nuremberg from the House of Hohenzollern and consisted mainly of southern Germans and some city contingents, 
whilst the army of Frederick and Dietzmann comprised armed peasants, contingents of some other cities, and knights from Brunswick. The result was a comprehensive defeat of the royalists. Count Frederick of Nuremberg was captured. King Albrecht of Habsburg then was murdered by his nephew over some other outlandish demand for land and privileges. So for the sake of family unity, Dietzmann did the best possible thing and died without offspring. Albrecht the Degenerate now had enough and retired to Erfurt, where he died in relative obscurity ten years later. The new king and emperor, Henry VII, recognized Frederick as the sole ruler and heir to the lands of the House of Wettin. That left Frederick the Bitten in control of the extensive territories of the House of Wettin, but everything is broken and devastated. The recovery takes decades, but in the end, the descendants of Conrad of Wettin become one of the richest, if not economically, the richest territorial princes in the German lands. Rich enough to buy the crown of Poland, to turn Dresden into a jewel of art and architecture, but not rich enough to ever gain the imperial crown, and despite all the pictures of soldiers on the Fürstenzug, not rich enough to hold out against the rising power of neighboring Prussia. So, we are gradually coming to the end of these summary histories of the territories that had once been part of the Stem Duchy of Saxony. One big one is still missing, though, and that is the story of the House of Welf and its greatest proponent, Henry the Lion. That will be the subject of next week's episode. And then I promise we will get into the world of the Hanseatic League. I hope you will come along. Ah, and there was the quiz. Do you remember them all? Here they go. Conrad the Great, Otto the Rich, Albrecht the Proud, Dietrich the Pressured, Henry the Venerable, Albrecht the Degenerate, and Frederick the Bitten. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It's thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. And if Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>